Bibles to the last book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, and we're going to read in Revelation chapter 3, which you will find on page 1,236, 1,236 if you're using one of the church Bibles. And uh, just in case you prematurely stopped following the wee flea or have never followed the wee flea, uh, the website of David Robertson, uh, today, as I discovered from uh, on the grapevine, uh, there is an, uh, a BBC radio interview that uh, is on the website uh, with um, you would recognize his face and you would also recognize his voice, David. Bill Whiteford. Okay, not David at all, but Bill Whiteford, but exactly the same individual. Um, and David is flying. It's very interesting. Um, I would say of the half hour, David is doing 25 minutes of the speaking. Um, and uh, well able to handle these people, and uh, I think probably Mr. Whiteford didn't realize by some of the difficult questions that he was asking David that he was really setting David up for the opportunity to sail in. So, I know none of you ever knew what political party David supported and how he voted in the Brexit referendum, but if you listen, <laughs> you will discover before he ceases to be our minister, <laughs> if you listen to it tonight. So, Revelation chapter 3 and from verse 14, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to 
the churches. Well, as we come tonight to the Lord's table and the Lord's supper, I wanted to draw our attention to these verses in Revelation chapter 3. I think most of us probably are familiar with the structure of at least the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Uh, The structure of the remaining chapters can uh, delay for the moment to some other occasion and probably some other preacher. But we're all, I think, familiar with the opening three chapters. John is exiled in Patmos because of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The president of uh, the seminary for which I used to be gainfully employed uh, was taking a tour with some seminary supporters of uh, the, the seven churches in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapters 1 through three, and he was going to Ephesus. He was uh, going to the ruins of some of these cities. And I said to him quite casually and almost unthinkingly, are you going to Patmos, which is this rocky islet off the coast where the apostle John was exiled for the faith of Jesus Christ? And he, he gave this response that I've never forgotten. No, he said, I asked the tour operator about that, And the tour operator said, there's no point in going to Patmos because you'll not see anything there. And I casually said, I'm not quite sure that he got the message, tell that to the Apostle John. Because, of course, this whole book that is a a picture book of the presence and triumph of Christ is is the revelation that the Lord Jesus gave to the Apostle John, in order to share it with the whole church. And the first three chapters have this very interesting uh, structure to them, don't they? Uh, The Apostle John encounters the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're given this dramatic description of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus tells him to Right, and so uh, Revelation opens, as it were, with a letter from the Apostle John to the churches, and Jesus, as it were, tells him to write seven postscripts to this general letter, a postscript for each of seven churches in what we nowadays call Turkey, to whom the book of Revelation was going in the first instance to be sent. And uh, it's almost like, if you can imagine, when uh, David was the editor of the Free Church Record, him having one edition with seven articles in which he was telling us what he thought about seven different free churches. So, let me tell you what Jesus really thinks about uh, this free church, about this free church, about free church in Glasgow, free church in Stornoway. And of course, the, 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 the striking thing about this is that these postscripts to each of the churches are available to all of the churches. 
So we really know what's going on really in the church in Philadelphia, even although we really belong to the church in Ephesus. And I've chosen this postscript in Revelation 3, 14 to 22, not, let me say that louder, not because I think this is the most appropriate postscript to St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee at this time. But because, as you would probably guess, of where this postscript leads. It leads to an invitation to supper. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. Now, some of us probably were brought up accustomed to the fact that this is the kind of text that would be used in an evangelistic sermon and the message would be, have you let Jesus into your heart? But it's not set in an evangelistic context except it's set in a gospel context. It's addressed to the church. It's not addressed in the first instance to those who are not Christians, to those who are unconverted. It's addressed to those who are converted. And it's an invitation, in essence, to have supper with Jesus. And the essence of what we will do together later in the service is exactly that. We're going to have supper in the old Scottish sense, not for the toffee-nosed people to whom dinner is called supper, but in the old Scottish sense of a little bite to eat and something to drink when all the work of the day is finished and we can sit round the fire or the central heating system and talk to each other. But it comes in a, it, it comes wrapped in it, it comes wrapped in Jesus' analysis of uh, this church in Laodicea, and I want us first of all to look at that. Uh, you know that all of these letters have basically the same structure. Jesus presents himself in one of the aspects in which he's described in chapter one, and then he gives his analysis of the spiritual condition, the challenges, the triumphs, the failures, the fruitfulness of each of the churches. And then he ends with some word of exhortation and perhaps a word of encouragement, and then a promise to those who overcome. And so I want to take just a moment, first of all, to look at the way in which Christ analyzes the Laodicean church's spiritual condition the way Christ analyzes the Laodicean church's spiritual condition. I was reading uh, the other day about the great uh, royal physician, Lord Harder, whom some of you who know about these things know was the boss of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Lord Harder was known as a great diagnostician, and his first rule was, when you approach the patient, 
You approach the patient from the foot of the bed. Next time you're in hospital, check it out and see if Lord Harder's rule is followed by your physician. Now, why did he say that? Harder believed that you should look at the patient as a whole. And I'm sure somewhere in medical schools, they say if you're going to be a general practitioner, when the person walks in, watch them. Take them in as a whole. You will learn a great deal. And here is Jesus, the great physician, and and he's giving his diagnosis of the spiritual condition of these Laodicean Christians. And I want you to notice how searching his exam is, how how penetrating his diagnosis. He, He tells them in the first instance what he knows about them. Verse 17, this is what I know about you. You say I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing. So, the first thing he knows about them is the way they think about themselves. Interesting, isn't it? The first thing he knows about them is the way they think about themselves. And the way they think about themselves is they are prosperous and they have need of nothing. Now, what's interesting about this penetrating diagnosis Jesus makes is this was probably of all these seven cities, this was supremely true of the city of Laodicea. The city of Laodicea had, had suffered an earthquake the previous century that had destroyed much of the place. And depending on when you think Revelation was written, uh, within a few decades at most before the book of Revelation had been written, the city was by and large destroyed by an earthquake. If it had happened in the United States, the next day on television, all the television channels would be saying, the president has declared Laodicea a disaster area, and disaster funds would pile in, relief would pile in to Laodicea. And Laodicea could have appealed to the Roman Empire for disaster funds, but they they didn't bother. They just cashed in some stocks and shares they had and rebuilt the whole place themselves. It, It was a fabulously prosperous place. But um, I think the key thing here is that that Jesus is not saying, I know you lot in Laodicea have plenty of money in the bank. He's saying that, that, that what has been true of the culture of the city in which I have placed you in order to be salt and light in that community your salt has begun to lose its saltiness. Your light has become dimmed. And instead of your lives impacting the culture, the culture has actually begun to impact your life as a church. Actually, it's always a danger. The church is set in the world to penetrate the world, as it were, to communicate Christ's gospel to the world. And the danger is always that in the process, it's the church that gets changed. And that was what had happened here. 
Um, and there are all kinds of ways in which you see parallels to this, that we imagine the churches that really matter are the churches that are in the great cities. I, I, I was called to a church in a city of a few hundred thousand people in the United States, and I remember somebody I knew quite well saying, you're going to there? By which he implied, I could understand you going to New York, I could understand you going to Chicago, or, or maybe even Memphis, but there? And uh, you see, they had, they had… Remember what Paul says in Romans 12, in J.B. Phillips' translation, that those of you over 50 remember, he says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And here was a prosperous world that had squeezed this church into its mold so that because they, they had everything they needed, they thought that they were spiritually prosperous, that they could see clearly. And the tragedy was that the very reverse was true. Jesus says, <coughs> you don't realize. Now, just take that in. It's not that these people are saying, on the outside we say to people we're doing well, but we know on the inside we're not doing well. The problem here was that not only were they deceptive, if you ask them how they were doing as a church, they were self-deceived. And that, of course, is the greatest danger, because the person who has fallen into self-deceit is the person who doesn't realize that they are deceived until Jesus comes along and uh, takes off the blinders. And he says, here is the truth about you. He says, you are, I mean, the words are overwhelming. You are wretched. You are pitiable. You are poor. You are blind. You are naked. I remember James Montgomery Boyce, whom some of you will know, excuse me, name-dropping an old friend who is now in glory, telling me when he was a student uh, in Switzerland uh, at uh, the time of <coughs> Lent when everybody was uh, celebrating the end of Lent with parties and masked balls the Salvation Army took out uh, adverti ad advertising space on, on the billboards with the words, God sees behind the mask. And, and he, he, he's ripped off the mask. Uh, isn't there a Star Wars episode where Scotty or Captain Kirk or one of these geezers holds on to one of these aliens and, and pulls at his face and rips off his face. And there's nothing behind the face. And that was the danger of the church in Laodicea. This is what Jesus knew about them. And this is the explanation for his reaction to them, which he states up front, verse 16. He says, you're tepid. You're, you're lukewarm, and I want, to, I want to spit you out of my mouth. 
Now, again, this, is, this, is, this must have been stunning to these Laodiceans. They didn't know that Jesus knew anything about Laodicea. But Laodicea was kind of halfway between Hierapolis and Colossae. And uh, Hierapolis was famous for its hot springs, and Colossae was famous for its, its cooling springs. You would, go to, you would go to Hierapolis to the spa for health reasons. You would, you would go to Colossae to get, a, could get some iced water, as it were. So, what Jesus is saying is, I wish you were either hot or cold. He doesn't mean, I wish you were full of zeal or I wish you had no zeal at all. What he means is, I wish there was something about your church that gave people a sense I can be healed here, or something about your church that made people feel this is a place in which I can be spiritually refreshed. But the truth of the matter was that they were tepid, they were lukewarm, and um, he wanted to spew them. you know, churches have a taste to Jesus, you know. People have a taste, don't they? You know, we say about people, you know, that fellow or that woman. But let's just stick with fellows. He really leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Think about that in terms of churches, because churches have personalities, don't they? They're communities. They have shapes. They have dispositions. They have characteristics. Um, and they have tastes. And there are churches, maybe you've visited one or another, and when you come out, you just, you might not be able to put your finger on it, but you say, there's something about that place that leaves a bit of a bad taste in your mouth. And this was Jesus. You know what they say about, you know, homes where elderly people are? <laughs> um, they're always complaining about the food. And, and the problem is, it's not the food. I mean, it may be the food. It's not necessarily the food. It's they don't have the same sense of taste. But you imagine, you imagine the Lord Jesus who has a perfect sense of taste. I mean, superior to these people who appear on television and take a taste, and you think, you can't possibly have tasted, oh, that's magnificent. And we taste to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, there's something off about the taste. So, what is it that's happening here? Well, Jesus says that they're in danger of him spewing them out of his mouth, but uh, you'll notice that he gives them a word of counsel. So, he tells us what he knows about them. He tells us what Jesus' reaction is to them. And then John tells us what the Lord Jesus counsels them to do in verse 18. And when, when they heard this, they must have thought, how can he possibly have known all these things to to speak in such a way that was culturally relevant to us. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. 
and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. This is verse 18. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. It just so happens the three things for which Laodicea was known and had made it prosperous were, first of all, banking. Secondly, the cloth industry. And thirdly, it's medical school with its special expertise apparently in creating an eye salve that was helpful to people with eye problems. And Jesus is, you see, he's saying to them, you've got so engrossed in this culture, you become like this culture, and you think you're prospering. But I know this culture, and I know that its banking system will bankrupt you spiritually. Its clothing system will leave you spiritually naked, and its medical faculty will not be able to help you to see spiritually so I counsel you to come and buy what you need from me. And I've little doubt at the background here, so there's wonderful words at the beginning of Isaiah 55, you know, those of you who have no money, come and buy food and drink that's free. He, he's, he, he's not saying, you know, you, you know, there are all kinds of things you need to do, and then maybe I'll think about being gracious to you. He's saying, come and get it from me because it's free and only I can give it to you. There's a fourth thing I want you to notice uh, about Jesus' analysis. And, and maybe I can put it this way. It's, John tells us why the Lord Jesus spoke to them as severely as he did. You know, I do I don't think we feel the weight of this, uh, because actually we, sh- we do, we all share this same problem, don't we? We, we? we don't often think that when Jesus comes to us, He says, you are poor and wretched and pitiable and blind. But when that, when that really takes hold of us, it breaks us. It casts us down makes us feel our weakness and our sinfulness. This is severe. Um, this, is, this is a verse not to preach on in a lot of churches. Remember, was it 20 years ago? Maybe it was longer. When Church of Scotland's magazine, Life and Work, they, they pulped, I believe, an entire edition of Life and Work, I think because somebody had called the heir to the throne a miserable sinner, or words to that effect. And they they pulped the whole thing. And then somebody wrote in saying, but he's an Anglican. Every Every time he says the words of the general confession, he confesses that he's a miserable sinner. It doesn't go down well. Jesus penetrating and telling you the truth about himself. But notice, notice these words in verse 19. They're so important. Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So listen, he's saying. 
So, in a way, the real danger for the church at Laodicea was not that Jesus was speaking to them so powerfully, so searchingly, so painfully for them. The real danger for the church at Laodicea would have been if Jesus didn't do that. And that would be true of us too, wouldn't it? Because until that happens, this is so interesting, until Jesus' words penetrate into our hearts and we understand that we are sinners in need of His salvation, we never will repent because we don't believe we need to repent. People don't like hearing about repentance. Somebody said to me just the other day, you almost never hear preaching on repentance. Why do you never hear preaching on repentance? Because we don't like being told we need to repent. But you see, if we don't need to repent, we don't need grace. We don't need the gospel. We don't need the cross. We don't need Jesus. At the end of the day, we don't need God. We can do it all on our own. And Jesus is speaking to them with such love and with such mercy. And here's an interesting thing, uh, which is taught in our church's uh, Confession of Faith, in, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15. Uh, listen to this. It's only when you know that Jesus is speaking to you in love that you're able to repent. Isn't that interesting? It's only when you know that Jesus is speaking to you in love that you're able to repent because it's only His love that gives you the hope of forgiveness that energizes your repentance. And that's why He speaks. If Jesus, if Jesus speaks right into your soul and seems to rip you up, then thank Him. And especially if He does it in a sermon, thank Him because nobody knows He's doing it in the sermon. Nobody knows but you that He's doing it. He's doing it personally, privately, graciously because He loves you so much. But He does want you to repent because until you turn round towards Him, there is no hope that you will be forgiven. And that was the situation with these Laodiceans. And it's all bringing us to this verse that has actually drawn me to this passage in the first place. First of all, we've got this lengthy section in which Jesus is giving an analysis, a diagnosis of their spiritual condition. And now, as we get to verse 20, the famous verse 20, our Lord Jesus now issues a gracious invitation. And it's interesting now, he, he, he actually speaks in picture language here, doesn't he? There probably wasn't a, 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 there's a, there's a St. Peter's church door, there wasn't a Laodicean church door. And Jesus did not go around knocking on church doors, okay? So this is a picture. And the marvelous thing is, it's a picture that prepares us for all the other pictures, because this is a picture book. The operative word in the book of Revelation is not so much listen after you've got listen in these postscripts. The operative word is look and see. 
so look and see this picture. Jesus standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. And obviously the he's and the him's are to indicate he's speaking here to individuals, not just to the church as a community. He stands at the door and knocks. I think, this is Ferguson, this is not, uh, can't be dogmatic about this, I think the background to this picture is found in the Song of Solomon. Remember in Song of Solomon chapter 5, um, the lover comes to visit the beloved, but the beloved, that's the she in the story, the beloved is, has gone to, gone to bed. And uh, he's, he's there, you know, he's at the lattices. He's looking in to see if she's still awake, and he's, he's knocking at the door, and she's like, you know, you know, I did all, I took all my makeup off, and I put on the night makeup, and, you know, just, you know. And this is Jesus, the lover. He's just told them, I'm telling you this because I love you. And I'm standing at the door and knocking. How does Jesus knock? What's Jesus knocking mean? Well, the next phrase tells you, doesn't it? If anyone hears my voice. So he doesn't say, I'm standing at the door shouting. He says, I'm standing at the door knocking. So if anyone hears my voice, you see, the knocking and his speaking are one and the same thing. So where is he speaking? He's speaking right here. He's speaking in this Christ-breathed word to the church. He's knocking at the door. He's speaking in his word. And if you explore the New Testament, you, you'll begin to notice that, that the early church, the New Testament church, understood that this is what happens when God's Word is expounded. We hear Jesus' voice. Um, actually, one of the things that fascinates me about listening to preaching is the, the extent to which you actually forget the voice of the preacher. And one of the reasons you forget the voice of the preacher is because the preaching of the Word of God, when it's a true exposition of the Word of God, is God speaking to us through His Word. And the great illustration of this, I may have used this before in another context, is what Paul says to the Ephesians. He speaks about Christ dying on the cross for them, and then he speaks about Christ coming and preaching peace to them. So the question is, that's Ephesians 2.17, when did Jesus go to Ephesus? When did Jesus preach in Ephesus? You know, when, when, was it, when was it up on the screen in the church in Ephesus? Next week, Jesus is coming to preach. Answer, when Paul came to preach. He says to the Thessalonians, I'm so glad that when, when you received the message we brought, you received it not just as the word of men, but as the Word of God speaking to you. And this is, a, this is our experience of preaching, isn't it? 
If it's not our experience of preaching, then something has gone wrong somewhere. Maybe here, maybe there, but certainly somewhere. Because this is what draws us to Christ, doesn't it? We sing Horatius Bonner's hymn. Not very often, but we do. I heard the voice of Jesus say. Now, what are you talking about there? When did you hear the voice of Jesus? Was Jesus speaking out there in St. Peter's Street? No, you heard. This is what Bonner means. He heard the voice of Jesus speaking to him through the preaching of the Word. And the human voice went into the background. And he knew Jesus had found him. He knew Jesus knew all about him. And that Jesus was speaking to him. And this is what our Lord is saying to the Laodiceans. If any of you hear my voice, then let me in. Open the door. <coughs> Come in, Jesus. And go anywhere. And uh, have supper with us. Now, that should remind you of something else. Another passage in Scripture, doesn't it? Luke 24 the Emmaus Road, their hearts have been warm. Jesus has been speaking to them. They get to their front door. They open the door and say, Jesus, come in. They don't know it's Jesus yet. <clears throat> and have supper with us. And then something very interesting happens. That's not where it ends. I will sup with him and he with me. I want you to notice what happens here. If you think about <coughs> the Emmaus Road story in Luke 24, you'll be able to see this very thing happening. Come in, Jesus. Stay. Have supper with us. Remember what happens next? Jesus, who is the invited guest, becomes the host. He's the one who prays breaks the bread, distributes it, and they recognize him. And it happens so sweetly, but so wonderfully. You know, at, at first we, you know, we may speak about, we, I let Jesus into my heart. But when he comes in, you're not the guest. He's the host. I've always regretted the fact that the Roman Catholic Church began to speak about the bread as the host. You see them holding it up. That's exalting the host. Because it's made those of us who are Protestants kind of embarrassed about the word host. We never use it at the Lord's table, do we, in case anyone thinks we become Roman Catholics. But he is the host. Not the elders, not the minister. It's the Lord Jesus. And so let me put it this way as we come to the Lord's table. <coughs> I wonder if this is true of you, that you sit at the Lord's Supper <coughs> with a relatively empty head, fuzzy. What are you doing here? I mean, what are you doing when you take the bread? What are you doing when you sip the wine? 
or you're having supper with Jesus. That's what you're doing. We've invited Him to come by His Holy Spirit. And although the bread and the wine come to us through in this church the hands of the elders, the hands of the elders are actually the hands of the Lord Jesus. And He's saying, have some supper with me. Just sit there and enjoy me. (coughs) And you notice something how this ends. (coughs) Excuse me. The one who conquers, Lodiceans conquer, (coughs) I will grant him to sit with me in my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Remember what Paul says about the Lord's Supper? We proclaim his death until he comes. And when he comes, these little bits of bread and these little sips of wine, well, when we sit with him on the throne, it will be a royal banquet. And it's just a practice session tonight for seeing him face to face. So it's time for supper. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that though we too have been wretched and poor and miserable and spiritually blind, that the Lord Jesus has spoken his word to us, called us into fellowship with himself. And given us occasions like this tonight when in this simple way we can gather round this table knowing that by His Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Himself is saying to us, if anyone tonight hears my voice and opens the door, then we'll have supper together. And I will come as his or her guest and immediately become his or her host and Lord until the day dawns and the shadows flee away and we sit together with you, Lord Jesus, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Nourish us tonight that we may go far in our Christian lives because of the way in which you have fed us with your presence and with your word and with the fellowship of your people. And we pray this in your name. Amen.